0: Navy History, arriving. Welcome aboard the U.S. Navy History Podcast. My name is Dale, and I'd like to introduce a man who has been very excited to be here, who's been listening for a very long time, Stephen. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Glad to be in the show. So I understand that you've been a huge fan for the month and a half I've been doing this. So
1: uh, any questions up to this point that uh, you might have? So far, no. I've been keeping up and... At this point, any questions I've had, I've been able to run past uh, either my buddy, who was in the Navy for several years, or doing a bit of digging online myself. So today, we are going to be starting and finishing, actually, the
0: Quasi-War, which was an undeclared war fought mostly at sea between the United States and the French Republic in 1798 to 1800. In the United States, the conflict was sometimes also referred to as the Undeclared War with france the Pirate Wars, or the Half-War. We will talk about a battle between the USS Delaware and the La Croyable, a battle between the USS Constellation and La Insurgente, the Battle of 1800, the Battle between the USS Constellation and the La Vengeance, the Battle of Puerto Plata Harbor, the Battle between USS Boston and Barracou, a battle between the USS Enterprise and Flambeau, and the Siege of Carousel. So let's get underway. The <whistles> USS Delaware versus La Corroyable was a single ship battle fought between the French schooner La Corroyable and the sloop of war USS Delaware. The engagement resulted in the first capture of any ship by the United States Navy, which had just been reformed months before the battle. Originally, a merchant ship called the Hamburg Packet. The USS Delaware was purchased by the United States Navy on May 5, 1798, with a complement of 180 men and 20 mounted guns, 16 nine-pounders and four six-pounders. She was given to Captain Stephen Decanter, Sr., to command. The Delaware set sail from Delaware Bay on July 6 with instructions to join the USS United States and the USS Ganges and patrol the section of the Atlantic coast between Long Island and Cape
1: Henry. Back then... With the modern technology we have now, if a ship is given orders, meet up with the fleet here, it's relatively easy to figure out where that is and coordinate. Back then, would the two ships have just been at anchor at the presumed meeting point and just waiting for that third ship? Or how would that have worked? A lot of times, communications would have to be done by
0: courier ship. So the USS United States and the USS Ganges could have received a ship saying, hey, the USS Delaware is coming out to, to meet you guys. But more than likely, uh, the USS Delaware would have gotten her orders while she was anchored or in port. And then the USS United States and the USS Ganges would have a set patrol that would be given to the Delaware, and then the Delaware would go over there
1: and attempt to locate them that way. I see. So not disrupting the patrol route of the two other ships, just waiting in the area, keeping a lookout, and then, upon finding them, presenting the orders, hey, we're joining your battle group. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. On July 7th, the day after she got underway, the
0: USS Delaware happened upon the American merchant vessel Alexander Hamilton, which had been carrying wine and brandy from New York to Baltimore when she was stopped by a French privateer who ransacked her. She was reduced to limping across the Great Egg Harbor Bay. When Captain DeCanter heard these reports from the Hamilton's crew, he began scouting the bay for a potentially culpable French vessel. An attack by a French privateer on an American merchantman was not unheard of at this time. Tensions between the United States and France had been rising in the months before the battle. The United States Congress had instructed all American warships in the newly reformed United States Navy to capture any French vessel found near the coast preying on American commerce. Congress had also commissioned 1,000 privateers to combat against the French hostilities of the day. Captain DeCanter, who had distinguished himself as a privateer during the American Revolutionary War, was now looking to make the most of the opportunity to command the Delaware. In the midst of her search for the French privateers, the Delaware spotted four sails on the horizon. Under DeCanter's order, the Delaware's crew had her pretend to be a merchant vessel. The act was convincing enough to draw the attention and pursuit of the French privateer schooner, La Croix It wasn't long before the captain of the La Croix discovered that the Delaware was a warship and tried to reverse course. After a lengthy chase, the La Croix found herself pinned against the shore of the Great Egg Harbor Bay. She surrendered after only a few cannon shots. On July 8th, the Delaware made her way back up the Delaware River with her prize and docked at Fort Mifflin. After executing the first American victory of the Quasi-War, Decanter became a hero. He boasted of his catch to several people, including Captain John Barry of the USS United States. The La croix Bull was deemed a lawful capture by the United States government and renamed the USS Retaliation. She was given to the command of Lieutenant William Bainbridge. Later in November, however, the French frigates Volontaire and Le insurgent attacked the USS Retaliation, capturing her. This was the only American Navy vessel to be captured during
1: the entire quasi-war. So, the French privateers, were they given letters of marque by the French Republic to prey on American ships? Or were they simply on the French Republic's bankroll and looking to make a quick buck on unsanctioned attacks and using the high tensions as an excuse?
0: Well, there is no information about whether there were letter of marks
1: issued to make it legal for the privateers to do that. I would think they would have to have letters of mark. Because otherwise it is just traditional piracy, which in order to avoid an international incident, then France would have to be like, hey, now, none of that. Right. Especially if they're saying, oh, we did this in your name. They'd be like, whoa, whoa,
0: whoa, whoa, we did not authorize this because that would start a war. Although this was an undeclared war anyway between France and the United States.
1: All right. So we can assume they had the letters, but we don't know for sure. Right. There's no information that through the sources that I've
0: used that the letters of Mark were issued. But we can
1: assume that France followed all the legalities. All right. Well, I guess the final burning question is, did that initial... uh, merchant ship get its cargo back or was that kind of taken as uh, spoils of victory I would think it would have been returned as long as
0: they were that the French did not already unload it which is quite possible because it does not give us a, a timeline of when the merchant ship was attacked and robbed to when the USS Delaware found the French ship and it could be that it's not even the same French vessel. It could right. be a completely different vessel. I highly doubt the when the French ransacked her, they were like, this is our ship. We are telling you the name of our ship because you need to know. <laughs> so
1: when we are attacked by the United States, they know that they caught the right ship. <laughs> Excellent point. Yeah, you uh, especially in international incidents, you don't admit to the grime. So if... It's the same ship, and before they were
0: unable to unload the cargo, yes, they that cargo would have been returned. If it was already unloaded and sold, no. Makes sense. But the, the Navy would not have kept that cargo. It would have been returned. Okay. The USS Constellation versus L- Insurgente. In response to the attacks by the French Navy, the United States government decided to go on the offensive by sending four naval squadrons to the Caribbean with orders to seize armed French vessels and prevent privateers from attacking American ships. One of the squadrons, under the command of Commodore Thomas Truxton, was dispatched to cruise between Puerto Rico and St. Kitts. Truxton's squadron consisted of his flagship, the frigate USS Constellation, the 20-Gun Baltimore, the Briggs, Richmond, and Norfolk, and the Revenue Cutter, Virginia. Opposing Truxton were several French vessels based out of Guadalupe, among them a number of privateers as well as two French naval frigates and a smaller 20-gun corvette. One of the French frigates, the Lutton Sergent, sorted out from Guadalupe on February 8th commanded by Michael-Pierre Barut. Though the 1,265-ton Constellation was officially classed by the United States Navy as a 36-gun frigate during the Quasi-War, she carried a heavier armament of 38 guns. It was commonplace for American naval ships during the Quasi-War to carry more guns than the number in their official rating. She had 28 24-pounders on her main deck and 10 12-pounders on her spar deck. Constellation's main armament had a combined throwing weight of 396 pounds. In contrast... La insurgente, rated a 32 gun Semilante-class frigate and was armed with 40 cannons. The armament of Barut's 950-ton ship consisted of 24 12-pounders, two 18-pounders, eight 6-pounders, four 32-pound carronades, and two 24-pound carronades, totaling a combined throwing weight of only 282 pounds. Thus, although Barut's vessel had the advantage of more guns, Truxton's frigate had a more powerful armament due to shot weight. In a boarding action, the French frigate's crew of 409 men would have had an advantage over the American ship's 309, but in a gunnery duel, the Americans were
1: superior. So, cannons haven't really been used in well over a century, really, as we think of them back in the movies like Pirates of the Caribbean. Have they been used more recently than that? Like, would, uh... I mean, obviously, this is a fast-forward, but, like, the USS Wisconsin and Arizona and those battleships, would those be classified as cannons, the main guns, in the traditional sense? Yes and no. Traditional sense, they, they, they,
0: they, they are cannons. Okay. They're just more modern. Yeah. There was a picture I saw. It was a It's a turret with twin 12-inch Mark 10 guns and then two 12-pound cannons for defense against torpedo boats mounted on the roof. It looks like it was on the HMS
1: dreadnought. Oh wow, that would be World War One then. It is World War One. So the question I was going to segue into with that, because aside from stuff like Pirates of the Caribbean or Master and Commander, uh people nowadays don't have much exposure to cannons. Uh just to put in perspective, like what is a thirty-two pound cannonball compared to, you know, like a twelve pounder or a six pounder Aside from just assigning, like, a weight number, like, are we talking cantaloupe, grapefruit, uh, large beach
0: ball? The size of it has to do with the weight, 100%. Right. So each ball, if it goes into a 12-pound cannon, it's a 12-pound ball. Right. When I was looking through this, because I had had a good inkling that you were going to start asking all about these cannons. So I I was doing (laughs) some research about it. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't really say anything about the actual size. But you're looking
1: at, you know, 12-pound solid shot, right? Yeah. Okay. And obviously, a larger cannonball could do more damage to the structure of the ship. Um, How much would a larger weight negatively affect the range?
0: The range is determined more by the cannon than the actual shot. Okay. Okay. The bigger the cannon, the longer the barrel, and it also depends on the amount of gunpowder
1: used. Okay. So a a cannon is effectively a hilariously oversized musket. It is not like a rifle or a shotgun nowadays, where it's all nice and contained in a single bullet. You know, you got everything you need to get the projectile from the delivery system, which is the weapon, and then sending the projectile, to the intended target. It's a whole process of packing powder, packing paper, packing the projectile, making sure everything's good and tight, getting the shot aligned. Exactly. Until
0: the breech-loading cannons were invented, that's exactly how it worked, just like a musket. Then once breech-loading was introduced, that made it a little bit easier. Believe it or not, it took more time to load a breech-loaded cannon than a muzzle-loading cannon.
1: No kidding. Yes. I'm assuming that wasn't just a learning curve thing of the sailors being used to loading it from one end and going through the song and dance and now loading from a different end. It's just training. Uh, yeah, right. So what, what was the uh, hurdle then of slowing it down? Because I would imagine that it should be faster in theory because I've never fired a, you know, muzzle-loading style shotgun but a break-action shotgun is relatively simple to reload if I have fired off my shot. I think it was just more complicated, more moving
0: parts. In a breech-loading cannon, you have the breech that swings away, and then you have to load everything and then secure it again, position the cannon where you want it. Also, one of the things that uh, increases the time is aiming it because instead of everything being right there in the front, push it out, aim,
1: fire, now you have things in the way. Ah, so with loading a traditional cannon, you aren't compromising the firing solution you've figured out when you're reloading. It's just a matter of pulling the gunwell back up and getting the cannon ready for the recoil again, in theory, whereas a breech-loading because of all the moving parts, you might accidentally be throwing off the firing solution that you had for the last shot. Firing solutions all done by eye. At this point in time,
0: firing solutions were all done by eye. Just like aiming a rifle.
1: Okay. You don't have the Commodore up there with his abacus, like, hmm, wind and... Uh, spotter, how far? Mile? Okay. Uh, rotation of the earth, gravity. Alright, Go no ranges that these
0: weapons fired at the curvature of the earth is not taken into account you're not you're not able to shoot over the horizon and even if you were if they're over the horizon they don't even know they're there
1: there is absolutely no radar at this point in time right i suppose most of my naval history in general like i'm hardly an expert but I think of stuff like World War I where, you know, engagements starting, you know, five, ten miles away were starting to happen. And it's uh, strange to think that back then you had to almost see the whites of their sails. I think the maximum range
0: was maybe a mile, and good luck hitting anything at that range. Most engagements are
1: very, very close. We're talking, you know, five, six hundred feet so that opening scene for Master and Commander, while really cool, is not the most realistic where the Archonon shooting on, I forget what uh, the main character's ship name was in that, but they seem to be almost on the horizon when it showed up. Not realistic in the slightest. No. Okay.
0: That was not even possible in World War I times. Okay. There was still no radar it was still visually based. Hmm. Much more powerful weapons, but still (laughs) visually based. Long-range engagements did not start until World War II, when radar was invented. Hmm. So, at noon on February 9th, while cruising independently, Truxton's men sighted a frigate off the coast of Nevis. Upon approach, it was evident that the vessel was flying American colors, and Constellation attempted to move closer to investigate. Unknown to Truxton... The frigate was the French La Insurgente under Michael Pierre Barut. Nearing the still unidentified La Insurgente, Truxton attempted to signal her to to discern her nationality by sending first British signals and then American signals. Unable to send the correct reply, La Insurgente replaced the American colors with French and fired a gun. Now, Truxton claimed that La Insurgente's shot was fired windward to signal a fight, while Barut claimed he ordered the shot fired to leeward to signal that he wished to communicate. Upon sighting Constellation at 12.30, Barut mistook the ship for a British corvette and began to flee towards the Dutch island of Saba and Sint-Estuetis to evade his assailant. Truxton gave chase, but was hampered at 13.30 when two vessels ran into a gale. As a result of the storm, La Inserente, lost her main topmast and was severely damaged, while Constellation managed to avoid significant damage and was able to close in on Barut. Though Truxton's ship initially held an advantage position in the wind known as the Weather Gauge, she was overarmed, and as a result, her leeward side healed so much that at the gun ports, on that side of the vessel, were not opened. Truxton decided to cede the Weather Gauge to the French by sailing around Insurgente's leeward side and bringing the constellation near the french frigate's port side in such a position the constellation was disadvantaged by the wind but was able to avoid some of the healing effect on her guns with the constellation approaching his frigate fast barut decided to communicate with the americans in order to avoid a fight the american frigate ignored the french attempt at hailing her and close to within 50 yards of la incinerante before opening up on her with a broadside loading her cannons with double shot the opening American salvo severely damaged the French frigate's quarterdeck. Barut's vessel replied with her own broadsides that damaged Constellation's foretopmast. Midshipman David Porter, stationed in the rigging of the Constellation's damaged mast, managed to relieve pressure from it and prevented its collapse. The La Incidente attempted to close on the American frigate to board her. With less damage
1: to her rigging, Constellation was easily able to avoid Barut's attempt at boarding. So, Well, I was going to say, so when you say double shot, um, is that, again, like movies, uh, where you have two smaller cannonballs, probably equaling the proper weight, held together by a chain and sort of acting like a ship-to-ship bola? Or is that where they just double load the cannon, probably breaking a few safety rules, and uh, just fire for effect? Well, it's not breaking safety
0: rules, but it's going to put more, a lot more pressure on your
1: cannon. And I suppose, a, I suppose a better way to put it would be throwing the, uh, safety manual out the window and, uh, just to get more performance. Right. That's something that they would do at extreme
0: close range when they know they're not going to miss. Uh, yes. That is loading two regular cannon balls into it. What you were referring to with the chain is chain okay. shot. And that's trying to take out the rigging. Ah. Uh, With the double shot, you're putting that into the hole.
1: You know, it's If I break this cannon, I probably wasn't getting a second shot anyway, so may as well make this shot really count. It's a risk, but it's a calculated risk. Right, right. Cannons are a risk, period. <laughs> what? It, you, <laughs> you mean effectively having a stick of dynamite as a rifle is uh, a little risky at times? I never would have guessed they tended to blow up sometimes, especially <laughs> if if the maintenance isn't done,
0: if the cannons are not properly loaded there's there's a lot of risk to it. That's why sometimes ships just explode
1: <laughs> Oh darn. Well, we can always get another one uh and then another ship <laughs> Well, Those so most expensive at... okay, so let's let's convert this to American dollars nowadays. I'm looking at Wikipedia at the moment, and the USS Constellation, commissioned in 1797, in 1797 money was $314,000. Yep. So, I'm not sure if the U.S. inflation calculator goes back that far. It should. I mean, that's not chump change, but that's not nearly as much as I thought it would be. So, if you wanted to make your very own USS Constellation today, folks, it would cost you about 6955000 $911.45. Did hey, do you just happen to have some rich friends who want to open a 19th century navy and let it loose in American waters? Eh, it'd be cheaper to buy a used destroyer. Uh, that certainly isn't chump change, but that's not nearly as expensive as I thought it would be. But that's, that still would be a pretty dent on a young country's economy. Especially taking, uh, damage that... I imagine if you lose your main mast and rigging... That's a costly repair, not just something where you can find a a large tree and some uh, wood glue and fix it in an afternoon.
0: No, usually when they lose a main mast or like all their rigging, they're usually stuck out there making
1: repairs a few weeks if they're not captured and towed in. And I imagine assuming you win the battle, that's a all right, we won. But we're limping back to port, and hopefully nobody sees us. Usually, yeah, after a battle, you go back to port to be refitted. Oh, e- even if you sustained relatively light damage? Not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily.
0: If it's light damage that's easily repairable, I'm sure they would stay out and continue their
1: their cruise. But in this day and age, being 1799, light d- damage was kind of mutually assured. If you were close enough to do inflict heavy damage to them, same deal on your end. Usually, okay. Which is why most of them try to avoid fights.
0: Which is why we'll get a lot of, oh, that's warship. We're
1: running. Hmm. That's a bigger warship. We're running. (laughs) And then, uh, you said they were trying to signal. I imagine back then, this is uh, signal flags. They use the cannons to signal. In this in this instance they sh- well that that raises further questions what's a British cannon signal compared to an American cannon signal? Oh, you were talking about before I, th- I thought you were talking about the last signal oh no, no that, that that one seemed pretty self-explanatory if it's fired in the direction of the ship, that's probably hostile intentions if it's fired in the completely opposite direction, that's probably hey, turn off uh, vibrate, pick up your phone, but 1799 equivalent they didn't shoot towards
0: the 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 other ship they shot to w- either windward or uh leeward yeah they either shot windward or leeward okay that that does not mean at the other vessel ah but yes
1: the other the communic- other communications would be via semaphore and for the uninitiated like me i assume that means the guy with two flags doing the hand signals more than two flags. There's actually a huge allotment of flags to use, but yes, it's flag communications. Okay. See, I thought it was just two flags and then there are patterns you're supposed to wave your arms in. There's also different patterned flags to mean different things. Oh, that's cool. There's a whole naval school you have to go to to be able to learn semaphore communications. And is it still taught as a backup in the event of... a uh, you know, having to do an electronics blackout or power failure, or is it... Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. U.S.
0: Navy ships still carry semaphore flags. Hmm. A lot of times you'll see them on ships as they're out at sea, underway, or in port. They also denote other things than just manual communication. They also denote, like, later in history where hey, we have disease on board. We're quarantined. Ah. Or when you're in port, when loading things like fuel while tied up to a pier, you'll raise a flag denoting that you are taking on fuel, fire danger,
1: explosion danger, things of that nature. So that string of flags you often see hanging out on docked vessels is more than just decoration. It actually serves a Assuming you're familiar with what it means, it's code for naval flag speak. This is actually a message I'm saying to those who need to know it. Correct. Not decoration, communication. Okay. And they're using the civilian world as well. So I guess the final question was ultimately, uh, it, I assume the constellation came out the winner in this engagement if uh, they kept that mast intact and. Well, we haven't finished the engagement yet. Oh, oh, okay. So let's get to the end before I ask this final question. Okay. Constellation crossed Le Insurgente's bow
0: and raked her with a broadside. Truxton then maneuvered Constellation to the Les Insurgent's starboard side and fired further broadsides into the French frigate, but received damage to her rigging in return. Constellation slipped ahead of Le Insurgente, again crossing her bow and raking her. Once more, Constellation slipped next to Le insurgent's leeward side and fired into her, disabling the French vessel's 18-pound guns. Constellation crossed the frigate's bow a third time, but the French ship had by then sustained massive damage. Attempts by Beirut's crew to repair Le insurgent's rigging were fruitless. The French captain was forced to
1: strike his colors and surrender the vessel. The entire engagement had lasted one hour and 14 minutes. Now, That one hour and 14 minutes, is that from initial contact and attempts at signaling, going through the gale, and then the actual exchange of gunfire? Or is that post-gale and cannons are fired? Any engagement is defined as
0: when hostilities commence. So, first shot to final shot.
1: Okay. That is... Did they use hearing protection back then, or, like, even if it was just... Actually, you know what? I do believe they stuck wads of, of cotton and then sealed with wax. Okay, because I was going to say, I, I have to imagine hearing loss was just a massive problem then if you were a gun crew member. It's a problem now. Okay. On deck during World War II
0: and the Korean War and up to the First Desert Storm War, When battleships were still going, if you were on deck when those big guns fired,
1: you had to have it. Well, you had to have double hearing protection. You still suffered hearing loss. Wow, that that is. At a certain point, you would think that uh, it just becomes a drone. But I mean, in an active combat situation, I and you have to be paying attention. That would just be incredibly stressful. I imagine. Um, so after the this entire engagement was effectively... Were the French refusing to communicate? Or were both captains just not picking up on who the other side really was at first? It seems to me that the
0: French wanted to communicate. And the Americans were like, no, we're going to blow them out of the water. Okay. And once the Constitution... Open fire on the French, the French returned fire,
1: and the whole battle ensued. Because, officially, this war was never a war. This was a political dispute that got firearms and ships involved. Yeah, it was a political
0: dispute with guns. Big guns.
1: <laughs> war is politics by any other means. I forget who said the quote, but okay, so... That is definitely applicable to this conflict, it seems. The end of the battle signaled the first victory over an enemy warship for the newly formed
0: United States Navy. After Barut struck his colors, Truxton sent a boat over to board, identify, and take possession of the French vessel. It was only upon boarding L'Escendurante that the Americans learned the identity of their opponents. The storm and the battle had caused immense damage to the French frigate. In comparison... Constellation had suffered moderate damage to her rigging, which was otherwise still intact. French casualties included 29 killed and 41 wounded, while the Americans suffered two dead and two wounded. One American died shortly after the battle ended, of wounds received from French fire, and another was executed for cowardice by Constellation's lieutenant, Andrew Sturette, after the man deserted his gun at the start of the battle. Constellation began taking on prisoners of war from La Insurgente by nightfall, and the two ships had become separated in a storm. Left aboard La Incidente were the Constellation's 1st Lieutenant John Rogers, midshipman David Porter, and 11 enlisted men, along with 170 French prisoners. The Americans were forced to sail the vessel shorthanded while guarding the French prisoners. As the prisoners outnumbered their captors and no gear to secure them could be found aboard, the Frenchmen were driven into the lower holds. Finally, after three nights... La Insurgente was brought in to St. Kitts, where Constellation was waiting for her, while at the American Naval Depot at St. Kitts. The Constellation's troublesome 24-pound guns were removed and replaced with 18-pound cannons. At the American Prize Court in Norfolk, Virginia, La Insurgente was condemned to be sold as a war prize, with the proceeds distributed to the crew of the Constellation. Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddart managed to negotiate the prize award, down from 120000 to 84000 before purchasing it and commissioning her in the United States Navy as the USS Insurgent. So, they just Americanized the name. For his victory over La Insurgente, Truxton received honors both at home and abroad. When accounts of the battle reached London, Truxton was feted by the merchants, who sent him a piece of silver plate to commemorate his victory. In the United States, morale soared upon hearing the first American victory over the French. Truxton was cited by Benjamin Stoddart, the Secretary for the Navy, for his excellent conduct during the battle, and songs and poems such as Brave Yankee Boys was later written about the event. In contrast, when Barut returned to France, he was accused of failing to put up sufficient resistance in the engagement and was given a court-martial. Despite the accusations, he had been praised by Truxton after the battle for his bravery and was acquitted during the court-martial. The French were infuriated upon hearing the result of the battle because the two countries were not officially at war. Governor Edmé Etteny, born Desferoux of Guadalupe, demanded that insurgent be returned to French control. Upon learning of the American refusal to repatriate insurgent, Desferru was outraged and ordered all American vessels and property to be seized while also declaring that a state of war existed between the United States and Guadalupe. After continuing their cruise for a few weeks, both Insurgent and Constellation were forced to return to Norfolk, Virginia, by the end of March, due to the expiration of the terms of enlistment of their crews.
1: So, back then, was it kind of standard procedure to take an enemy vessel as prize if it was even semi-intact? Yes.
0: Okay. And a lot of times they would be sold to the country's navy and commissioned in their navy.
1: So not and it, it makes sense thinking about it. Not like uh, knights or nobility back during the uh, Middle Ages or the Renaissance of like, ah, you want your frigate back. I would like, you know, 100 pounds hundred thousand pounds silver, please. Okay, you can have your frigate back and I'll take my money and make my own fancy ship. Instead, they're just skipping the middleman and like, well, it's a bit damaged, but you know, some duct tape, some TLC, new crew. And we'll change out the flag and call it good. They would not sell a ship back to the enemy. That ship is more
0: useful anyway to join their fleet. Right. So they it, repairing it is quarter the cost of building a new ship. So it's cheaper.
1: Yeah. You're denying an asset to the enemy. You're increasing your own military assets at a reduced cost. And it's a good old morale blow to the enemy as well, because, hey, your stuff's mine now.
0: And a lot of times, civilians might actually purchase the ship and then have a letter of mark issued and send it back out there anyway to harass the enemy.
1: Ah, okay, so that's how privateer navies were still relevant at this time then. Former military vessels that were probably uh, used to fly the colors of the enemy, purchased by a civilian crew, And thought of as an investment because, hey, we might be able to make a tidy profit being legally sanctioned pirates. Yes. Okay. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. Letters of Mark were used to increase the number of friendly ships to harass the enemy. So instead of the Navy having to, like it is now, purchase, maintain, crew, and then send them out wherever they need to go they can submit they can maintain a minimum amount of navy vessels for during peacetime and once war hits they can say here's a letter of mark go fight the enemy you keep what you find they keep what they find yes and all the spoils take when they take a take a prize all the spoils on that ship is given to the holder of the letter of mark okay or the issuer of the letter of mark
1: and was it, a uh, common practice then, assuming the vessel was purchased by the, uh, well, when the vessel would be purchased by the government for a refit and then, uh, becoming a sanctioned part of the Navy or military to be shared with the crew? Um, cause nowadays I feel like if this kind of thing happened, they would just say, excellent job, commanding officer, you and your crew did quite well out there. We got it from here. And uh, a big bonus going to everybody based on the going rate of the ship probably wouldn't happen. It does not happen nowadays. (laughs) At least not in our Navy. Okay. Was it common back then, or was this just a, you know, wow, you guys did really good, we didn't expect you to actually capture a French frigate?
0: I'm not sure, but I have come across this a few times, where a captured ship is sold, and the proceeds are shared with the crew of the capturing ship. Okay. So whether it was common, I don't know. But it has Mm. happened a number of times. (whistles) So, the Battle of January 1st, 1800, took place off the coast of present-day Haiti, near the island of Gonave in the Bight of Leogang. The battle was fought between an American convoy of four merchant vessels escorted by the United States Naval Schooner USS Experiment and a squadron of armed barges manned by Haitians known as Picaroons. With the dawn of the Haitian Revolution in 1791, a successful slave rebellion on the French colony, then known as Saint Domingo, allowed the local population to gain control over the government. Despite their success in removing the French colonial authorities... The various political factions that had seized control of the colony were fractious. The fighting soon broke out among them. By 1800, the War of Knives between the pro-French André Regarde and pro-autonomy Toussaint-L'Overture was in full swing and saint Domingo was divided in two. Rigard controlled part of the southern portion of saint Domingo, while L'Overture controlled the rest of the French colony. In need of supplies and material, Regards forces attacked any non-French ship that passed them. In late December 1799, the American armed schooner experiment was escorting under convoy the brig Daniel and Mary and the schooner's seaflower Mary and Washington to prevent their capture by French privateers. On January 1, 1800, the convoy was caught in a dead calm off the north side of the present-day Haitian islands of Gonnevie in the Bight of Gain. Seeing the convoy be calmed, Regard sent 11 armed barges out to attack and seize the American vessels. The crews of the American merchant vessels possessed only small arms, but their escort experiment was a much more powerful vessel commanded by William Maley. The 135-ton experiment was armed with 12 six-pound cannons and had a complement of 70 men. In comparison, Regard's initial attack force consisted of 11 barges, crewed by 40 to 50 men each in the smaller ones, and 60 or 70 in the larger vessels. These barges were primarily propelled by oars, with 26 per vessel. The Haitian craft were each equipped with a mix of swivel guns and four-pound cannons. With most vessels armed with two or three guns as well as small arms, in addition to the vessels that set out to attack the convoy, there were more barges and men nearby that the Haitians could call upon if reinforcements were needed. In total, some 37 barges and 1500 men were at regards immediate disposal. Though the Americans did not know this during the attack. Individually, the Haitian barges presented only a small threat to the convoy, but when attacking in mass, they could easily overwhelm and capture the American ships if they managed to board them. Experiment kept her gun ports closed and passed herself off as a merchantman, while the Haitians sailed closer to the convoy with the intent of boarding and capturing all five vessels. Once the Haitians were in musket range of the American vessels, they opened fire on them. An experiment returned to fire. Grape shot from the Americans wreaked havoc among the Haitian barges as they were forced to withdraw. They stood off the American convoy for 30 minutes before beaching at the nearby island of Gonave to land their wounded and gather reinforcements. With three more barges and fresh crews, the picaroons set off to assault the American convoy once more. They divided themselves into three squadrons of four barges each and set course to attack Experiment. The lead and centermost divisions attacked the sides of the American warship, while the rear division assaulted the stern. During the lull in fighting, Experiment had readied herself for the Picaroon's next assault by positioning musketeers in defensive positions, loading her main guns, and raising boarding nets. Thus, when the Haitians attacked the American warship again, she was well prepared to repulse any attempt at boarding her. For three hours, experiment battled the barges, sinking two and killing a great many of the picaroons. During this time, two of the barges left the warship and attacked the merchant ships. These barges managed to protect themselves from experiment by sailing behind the schooner Mary, which was between the two barges of the warship. The Haitians boarded Mary and killed the captain. Many of the crew jumped into the sea, and the rest hid in the hold. The second barge attempted to take Daniel and Mary, but was sunk by fire from Experiment. Once the Haitians had boarded Mary, Experiment opened fire upon her with grape shot, driving the picaroons off. The entire flotilla of Haitians once more retired to Gonave and replaced their wounded crew members with fresh ones. Seeing that Daniel and Mary and Washington had drifted away from the convoy, the Haitians set out to attack them. The two civilian vessels, having drifted too far from the protection of Experiment's guns, were abandoned by their crews and passengers who fled to the American warship. The Haitians boarded and plundered these two vessels, carrying them further away from Experiment. Experiment managed to get close enough to the barges to attack them with her cannon, but could not pursue them as two barges had broken away from the main flotilla and were positioned to take Mary and Seaflower if Experiment left them. Eventually, the remnants of the convoy managed to make it to Leogane, where they were looked after by the American consul. The USX Experiment had succeeded in protecting two of the convoy, while the other two ships were taken by the Picaroons. On the American side, only the captain of the schooner, Mary, had been killed. The Americans also suffered two wounded, one civilian, and Experiment's second in command, David Porter, who had been shot in the arm during the action. In exchange, the Haitians had lost two of their barges and a great many casualties. Regard's picaroons attacked another American convoy later in the year and continued to harass American shipping until Regard was ousted from St. Domingo at the end of the War of Knives. After fleeing from Guadalupe, he left for France on the schooner Diane, but was captured and taken to St. Kitts when experiment intercepted her on October 1, 1800. The battle would prove controversial in the United States as several officers' reports suggested that Lt. Maley, commander of experiment, had showed cowardice during the engagement. Lieutenant Porter stated that Maley had tried to insist on surrendering to the Picaroons immediately upon their arrival. It was alleged that Maley thought the situation was hopeless due to the sheer number of pro-French Haitians who were attacking the convoy, and he attempted to strike the colors. The officer reports also commended Porter, saying that he had saved Experiment and her convoy by acting on his own initiative to ignore Maley's defeatism, urging the crew to fight. Other American officials, such as the American consul at Lyon, disagreed with Porter's accusations, and instead lauded Magli for his bravery. Threats of court-martial were made against him, but no formal charges regarding the incident were ever brought. On July 16, 1800, he was replaced as commander of experiment by Charles Stewart. The incident haunted his career until his retirement.
1: Now, it seemed like you were just sitting there, just holding your breath. <laughs> uh, so, it sounds like the commanding officer of the, uh, I almost said of the USS Pickeroon, but that would have been woefully inaccurate. Yes. <laughs> but it sounds like the commanding officer of the United States vessel, the, the man who was almost court-martialed, it sounds as though he has a bit of a, a Zap Brannigan reputation, or at least had it after this engagement. Uh, because while it certainly sounds like the Haitian Navy, well, not Haitian at the time, uh, French side... In the Haitian Civil War. You know, it it sounds almost like... uh, Why am I drawing a blank on what the term is? But they're ore-driven barges. I feel like if he didn't want to fight, even in a dead calm, isn't there any way for uh, a ship to move? Only if they're equipped with oars. If they're not equipped with oars, they're becalmed. Uh, They are DIW, dead in the water. Okay, so... Even if he, it is understandable then, in his situation being what it was, we can be easily completely surrounded. And while we have the technological superiority in this situation between our cannons, muskets, and all that, we are literally outnumbered hundreds to one. Yes. And he was at the mercy of the tides and what current there might be. Right. They were at the mercy of the currents. Okay. But only one person
0: accused him of cowardice. Uh, and that okay. was the guy who took command after
1: his retirement, or after he left command of the experiment. Okay, so these charges, these accusations didn't even start happening until his replacement uh, got the position. I believe that
0: Charles Stewart used the situation to make a bold-faced lie okay. to get May Lee fired as the captain. So he could take it.
1: Okay. So the individual who started that story and these rumors certainly had an agenda and an objective and used the situation to his benefit. I believe so. No charges were ever brought onto Mailey.
0: So there was no evidence to bring a charge of cowardice against him. Okay. But once you have a... Even an inkling of cowardice that people think that you're a coward. You're you are done.
1: You will not be able to command men and have them trust you. Gotcha. Okay. And that also answers the other question I had, but I had a feeling it was going to be this answer is like, you know, even if there wasn't much wind, couldn't they just sail away from the ore-driven barges? Because I can't imagine that barges driven by oars would be you know, breaking any sort of speed records for maritime craft, but if you're dead in the water, even something moving at two or three knots will overtake you quite quickly. Yeah. It also depends on how many oars
0: these pickeroons have. If they have 60 men on oars
1: with a light barge like that, you're going to get some feed. Well, when you say barge, I just imagine a giant trash barge like you might see in New York Harbor or something. So these were not you know, big, boxy, rectangular things. These were, you know, relatively streamlined as far as maneuvering through the water is concerned. A Picaroon looks like a... It
0: The hull is shaped like a standard boat. It's just on a smaller scale. It being a barge means it did not have any propulsion other than what they were able to provide by the oars. A lot of times... Okay. A barge is towed by another vessel who had... Some sort of power source, whether it be wind, engines later, or things of that nature.
1: Well, it seems like every era has a few unique ship classifications, and then there are a few that are just kind of the technology changes, maybe the uh, exact definition changes, but the terms are still used, frigate, schooner, destroyer, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, when I hear barge, all, so a barge is effectively a trailer in water terms. Yeah. In this situation, these barge, these trailers in land terms were driven by oars. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Barge is just an unpowered vessel for cargo. And as far as cannons are concerned, I mean, it sounds like, uh, the American ship didn't have any massive guns like uh, the previous two engagements we were discussing. Oh, they did. They loaded them with grape shot. Well, yeah, yeah, you're you're dealing with six-pound shotguns at that point, which is nothing to sneeze at. Um, No, they get a direct hit on one of the barges. They're wiping out the entire craft,
0: or every man on that craft.
1: Yeah, whereas the barges only had, if I'm remembering right, two four-pound cannons. Yeah, they were very—they had armament, but it wasn't very much. Right. The equivalent of pea shooters in ship-to-ship terms.
0: Yeah, they would be mostly used for, say,
1: anti-personnel. What they wanted was the ship. They wanted the ship. Yeah. They didn't want the people yeah. on the ship. They wanted to get rid of the American pest problem that was keeping them off from getting some non-barred ships. Yeah. They wanted what okay. was on them, and they wanted the ships themselves. All right. So what ultimately happened uh, to the two civilian ships that were captured? Were they uh, eventually, like, when the governor was ousted, returned to uh, America by the Haitian Republic? Were they kept by the Haitian Republic to start their own navy? I'm sure that they were kept. Even after peace, ships, capture ships, are not
0: returned. They're usually sold okay. off to somebody. Alright. I'm sure somebody bought those Bought those boats and used them until they were captured by the next Navy. (laughs) Or sunk. The USS Constellation versus La Vengeance. It was a battle fought between frigates of the French Navy and the United States Navy. The battle resulted in the American frigate USS Constellation severely damaging the, the French frigate La Vengeance and forcing her to flee. In order to prevent French attacks against American merchantmen in the Caribbean, the United States Navy maintained four squadrons of vessels in the region. One such squadron was commanded by Commodore Thomas Truxton and tasked with patrolling the Lesser Antilles. Taking command on January 19, 1800, after arriving at St. Kitts in his flagship USS Constellation, Truxton's squadron consisted of four frigates, three schooners, and a ship-rigged man-of-war. Besides the numerous privateers operating the area, the only French naval forces in Truxton's area of operations were the frigate La Vengeance under Francois Marie Petot and the corvette La Barracou under Louis Senis. Both vessels had arrived at Guadeloupe on December 10, 1800, escorting the new administrators of the French colony. Once at St. Kitts, Truxton dispersed his squadron, giving each ship orders to cruise independently. He then set sail for Guadalupe on January 30th, 1800, with his flagship Constellation intending to challenge the French frigate and
1: corvette there. So when you say Commodore, um, so captain obviously in command of a ship, sometimes lieutenants are, if it's not a very important vessel in the grand scheme of things. Is Commodore in this era command of an entire battle group then? Commodore would be above captain. Okay. I think, this is before Admirals, but... Okay. I could be wrong. I I was going to ask, like, is this the guy that reports directly to the Admiral? Because I imagine at this time there was a Admiral of the United States Navy, not, you know, one for every fleet. I'm trying to remember if I came across Admiral,
0: any Admirals yet. Well, in either case, Commodore would be the commander of the battle group.
1: Okay. And I imagine... Traditionally, I'm sure there were outliers that would break the tradition, but Commodore probably wanted to be on the most heavily armed and largest vessel. More, I think more it would be just whatever he preferred. Oh, okay. It seems that he also
0: commanded the vessel. There was no other captain. So he also commanded the vessel, which with a Admiral is different. Okay. Admiral would choose his flagship and command the battle group from there, but the captain would still be in charge of his own boat. Hmm, didn't know that. So, he intended to challenge the French frigate and corvette. The same day, Pitot and La Le Vengeance left Guadeloupe's capital of Besseterre for France. By this point in the Quasi War, Truxton and his crew were hardened veterans and were well prepared for a fight. The French counterparts were not as ready for an engagement. Pitot's frigate was carrying a large quantity of specie as well as 36 American prisoners of war and 80 passengers, two of whom were generals. Under such circumstances, Pitot intended to avoid an engagement if possible, even though La Vengeance was a more heavily armed vessel carrying 8 42 pound carronades, 28 18 pounders, and 16 12 pound cannons. The French also had a distinct advantage in the event of a boarding action, as Constellation only had 310 men to La Vengeance's complement of 380.
1: Now, what is a carronade compared to a cannon? Carronades have
0: shorter ranges. Oh, okay. Think of a cannon as a rifle and a carronade as a shotgun. Okay. On February 1st, at 0700, Truxton's crew spotted what appeared to be a 50-gun frigate flying British colors, two leagues off the Terra roadstead. In an effort to communicate with the mysterious frigate, Constellation flew British colors. Pettot has sighted the American frigate by 0745, thinking the vessel chasing him was a superior 55-gun warship. He sought to avoid conflict and continued to sail with the wind rather than head north as he had originally intended. In an effort to increase her speed, the French frigate's crew put out studding sails to catch more wind. The behavior of Pitat's frigate signaled to Truxton that she was really a French warship, so he ordered Constellation cleared for battle and gave chase. At 0800, he struck the British colors and raised the American flag. As he closed with La Vengeance, he shouted through a speaking trumpet for the French vessel to surrender. At this point, the action began with Pitot's stern chasers opening fire upon Constellation. In an effort to cut the American frigate's advantage and speed, La Vengeance changed course to the southeast where the wind would give it an advantage. As he maneuvered his vessel, Pitot was able to unleash a broadside aimed at Constellation's rigging. The American frigate waited to return fire until it gained the weather gauge. Now having the advantage of the wind, Truxton's opening double-shotted broadside slammed into the port side of La Vengeance's hull. Sailing side by side, the two frigates continued to engage each other for two and a half hours, while Truxton attempted unsuccessfully to move his ship into a raking fire position. As the French tended to aim for the rigging, at one point Constitution's sails were shot away and the frigate lost its maneuverability until they could be replaced.
1: So, raking fire... Is that uh, trying to cut across across the bow of the enemy ship while you have a broadside? It is defined as cannon fire directed
0: parallel to the long axis of, of an enemy ship. So it would be your ships coming in at an angle and hitting the ship that way. Instead of being side by side, one's at, say, a 45 degree angle while the other one is straight.
1: Okay, so the idea is you are presenting a smaller target. Yes. All right.
0: While they are presenting the biggest target as, as they can. Okay. Makes sense. Yep. Yeah. The Vengeance prepared for boarding when the two frigates drew closer together at 2245. But this attempt was foiled when Constellation fired broadsides of Grapeshot at Pitot's ship, while American Marines fired from their muskets and hurtled grenades down from the rigging. With the French ship drawing off, the two vessels began a longer-range round-shot duel that lasted until 0200 on February 2nd, 1800, when La Vengeance struck her colors for the second time. At some point earlier in the action, Pétot had struck his flag, but the Americans did not notice because of how dark it was. Truxton moved Constellation to within 25 yards of his vanquished opponent, aiming to take her as a prize. The American Commodore's ambitions were spoiled when at 0300, Constellation's main mast fell overboard, killing several top men who went down with it. With the Americans unable to come alongside his vessel, Patot took advantage of the situation and simply slipped away into the darkness. Casualties were heavy on both sides, and both vessels were in such poor condition that each commander thought he had sunk his opponent. Most of La Vengeance's rigging had been blown away. Only the lower foremast, lower mizzenmast, and bowsprite were operational. Patat set course for Kirigau and was forced to ground his vessel there to prevent it from sinking. The number of French casualties is somewhat unclear. The official French accounts report 28 dead and 40 wounded, while accounts from Kirigau state that the French frigate had lost 160 men. Once Patot reached Kirigao, he was beset with further problems. La Vengeance remained out of action for months due to difficulties in acquiring support needed to repair the frigate from the Dutch officials there. A French expedition to seize the island brought the material needed to repair the frigate, but when asked to help with the attack, Pitot refused and slipped away to Guadeloupe. Constellation had suffered heavy damage, with 15 of her crew slain and a further 25 wounded, of whom 11 later died. The ship sailed to Port Royal, Jamaica, for a refit, but Truxton could not complete the necessary repairs because of shortage of naval stores. The ship left Jamaica a week after she arrived, with only her main mast replaced. After escorting a convoy of 14 merchantmen back to the United States, Truxton sailed his battered frigate to Hampton Roads for a proper refit. Only after he returned to the United States did the American Commodore finally learn that the LaVengeance had not been sunk. Truxton was considered a hero and received considerable praise for his actions. In response to his engagement with Pitot's frigate, the American government commended
1: Truxton with a Congressional gold medal depicting the battle. So, my first question is, you said this uh, quasi-war was almost exclusively fought at sea, right? Yes. What were the French doing with a pair of American generals? They, were, they weren't American generals. They were French generals. I'll, oh, okay, okay. I thought they were American no,
0: they had a lot of American prisoners, but the generals were French.
1: Okay. Uh, so the American prisoners were probably captured sailors or merchant sailors. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and then he mentioned a refitted man of war. Um, I assume that wasn't involved in this uh, engagement, but was that just a very large merchant vessel they slammed a bunch of uh, cannons on then or because I I just know the term man of war I don't really know what the official definition would be whether that's a, a number of guns required or decks
0: a man of war is a very large purpose built ship for war Okay. it is the most heavily armed most heavily armored boat that is put out there at this time,
1: Aegis sail equivalent of a main battleship. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Or a dreadnought. Okay. So, it, c- civilian refit, not even remotely. No.
0: The refit at the beginning of that is it's already been in battle and needed to be refitted. needed okay. to be repaired, upgraded, what have you.
1: I see. I see. Okay. And the Commodore split up his forces to help find the French vessel. But once found, obviously he couldn't, you know, call the banners, light the beacons, you know, raise the flags. Like, it, that isn't just something to give them a call and they show up. You're talking dozens, if not hundreds of nautical miles between ships. Yeah, there was You're no communication. Just, right. It, it, exactly. Like, they weren't staying in shot of each other. They were, you know, hey, this is the rough area we're patrolling... At a later point, we will meet up back here if we do not find the enemy. Yep. Okay. Pretty much, he spread out
0: his forces to cover as much of the sea as possible, and then they would meet up again at a
1: specified, a specific time and place. All right.
0: And then continue
1: from there. And then uh, something else I'm noticing is a common pattern, at least. Um, At this point, because like, I know 1812 is just around the corner, so something has to happen soon for America and the UK to get rather cross with one another again. Were we buddy-buddy at this time? Not exactly. At this point in time, we had a
0: angry peace, I guess you could call it. Okay. But you also have to
1: understand that the British were involved in a lot of... Um, so I guess then. Now, I'm no expert in maritime law let alone 19th century maritime law or rules of engagement. But isn't running up another country's flag an act of piracy? Like you're masquerading as another nation's either civilian merchant vessel or military vessel? Or were they when they do that, is that just a like, hey, we're cool with British sailors. Are you a British sailor? Well, I'm
0: also not a expert in maritime law, especially okay. in during this time frame. But yes, they, everybody did that quite a bit. It okay. is a, a tactic to get close, figure out who is the other boat, and then
1: it goes from there. Okay, so it's... It, it's, a, it's a stealth tactic. Yeah, you suspect they aren't British. You're pretty sure they suspect you're not British. But if we're both pretending to be British, we can get close enough to verify if we're both not British right, okay we're we are
0: not at war with the British, so we'll run some and you're not at war with the British, so we'll run British colors right now so we can get close enough to identify you, and then if we think we can take you, we'll lower the British flag, put up the American or French flag, and
1: attack. okay, it was done by all sides, okay, um i I, I guess. Hollywood logic, I'm just... Y- you see the captains pull out the spyglass and like... Yep, that, that that is a French-sounding name right there. They're probably French. Or... And but then vice versa. Hmm. Constellation. That is either British or, Engl- or American. And we don't like either of them at the moment. It's more flag adif- identification. Right, right. What Hollywood does where they pull out the spyglass and you can... You know, for lack of a better term read the nautical license plate is a Hollywood fiction, then? Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah, it was all done by flags for identification.
1: Okay. Like, if the name was written on the ship anywhere, it would be very small, you know, unless you were literally next to the ship, not a chance of actually making out what it says. Yeah, correct. Okay. That's that's why flags are
0: more important, because they're also elevated very high, And in that time, they were huge. If you see pictures from from this day and age, any of these the art that was drawn by these artists, you'll look at these flags and they're
1: streaming out. It looks like a good forty feet behind the vessel. So, those giant American flags you see at most malls was par for the course on naval vessels. That's what it seems like across the globe. That's what it seems like. Okay. They, they must have had one heck of a linen closet for all the flags then. Linen was a big game. Big, big <laughs> linen was a big... back then. Okay, so if we go back in time, put our money in linen. That, that is the 19th century apple. Sounds good to me. All right. Okay. So, the Battle of Perto
0: Plata Harbor. It was a small battle... In 1800, between a French privateer, a Spanish fort, and the United States. In early May 1800, Captain Salias Talbot organized a naval expedition to Puerto Plata, Santa Dominico. His objective was to harass French shipping around the colony of their Spanish ally. After capturing the small French sloop Sally, the USS Constitution arrived at Puerto Plata, a small corvette was seen at anchor in the harbor. Unwilling to take fire from Spanish defenses, the U.S.'s constitution sailed around to a beach, out of the Spanish fort's range. There, she offloaded a landing force of about 100 Marines and sailors. The landing party then marched onto the Sandwich until the prize sloop Sally was sent in to attack by way of sea. No doubt shocked at the approaching American force. The French hardly put up a fight and the Sandwich was captured. Then the American turned their attention to... Fort Lanza, San Felipe, which had been taking pot shots of the Americans since they came into range. After another brief fight, the Spanish defenses were overrun and the Marines spiked the fort's cannon. While they captured the sandwich and the assault on the Spanish fort, U.S. forces returned to their ships and sailed home. The Battle of Puerto Plata Harbor was one of the few land battles during the Quasi-War. Detailed casualties of the engagements are unknown.
1: What is known is that not many people became casualties that day. I'm just going to say it. That sounds like a, a diner dish you might find in Florida, the purta platter. The Porto Plata. Yeah, yeah exa- yes. Yeah, that sounds like it's going to be like a, a brunch special. Uh. So, this fort. I, I guess the first question is, uh, were Spain and French allies at this time? Because Spain always seems to be a wild card as to what side it'll be on in uh global conflicts. Well, since I concentrated on the U.S., I don't know. Okay. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair. And then uh, sloop classification. Like, I imagine a sloop would be just any sort of lightly armed, lightly armored, but relatively fast, like meant to be a scouting vessel primarily? It has only one mast. Ah, that's the definition then. That's okay. the difference. So
0: it's a smaller boat. Okay. You could typically use those as recon, things of that nature. Message sending would be popular with them. Getting orders sent
1: to different areas. The courier ships that you were mentioning earlier? Yeah. Okay. So they would also be lightly armed, lightly armored, things of that nature. Okay. All right. So this just sounds like uh, an American ship saw a French privateer in harbor at a... Spaniard fort, and did the tactically sensible thing to avoid casualties and incoming fire. Instead of going right in, guns blazing, they landed a force of marines
0: and then sent a boat in as a distraction and
1: basically outflaked them. Yep. Yeah. If it isn't broken, don't fix it. All right. This one sounds pretty straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very, very short, very straightforward. Oh, spiking the cannons. Uh, is that like driving an iron bar through the barrels to obstruct its use, or...? Okay, so there's only two parts of the cannon that is open to air. That's the
0: muzzle, and that's yep. the, there's also a vent on the aft end of the cannon. So that vent, what you want to do is you want to drive in a nail or a heavy spike. And what that'll do is that'll render that cannon inoperative. Huh. With Without that vent, the cannon will go boom.
1: And not the way you want it to. <laughs> okay. It, it sounds like if you had a little time to play with them, they were relatively easily sabotaged. hmm Okay.
0: All right, another short one. The battle between the USS Boston and Barracuda. Which was fought off Guadalupe. The USS Boston, of 36 guns, commanded by Captain George Little, captured the French corvette, Barracou. Cruising 600 miles northwest of Guadalupe in the morning of October 12th, the Boston spotted two vessels that, by 0800, were determined to be warships a schooner and the 24 gun Barracou, which then headed in different directions. Pursuing the latter, the Boston gained steadily before catching in the late afternoon. Barracu then shortened sail, and the two began a stubborn engagement, each trying to wreck the spars, sails, and rigging of the other until the damage to the tops of both of them made them unmanageable, and they drifted apart. The crews then spent the next several hours repairing their damage so that they can rejoin the fight. Well, after dusk, the two were again able to engage, which they did for more than an hour. The battle was finally terminated when, losing her fore and mainmast, and already having had boarding attempts repulsed, the Barracou was forced to strike her colors. Following several days spent in Mobile, repairing spars, sails, and rigging, the Boston towed the Barracou under Prize Master Robert Haswell to its namesake home Port of Boston. On arrival, it was discovered that the battle had actually been fought two weeks after a peace agreement had formally ended hostilities. As a consequence, the Barracou was repaired at American expense and returned to France. The victory was also tainted by charges that the French officers had been plundered of their personal belongings and black servants, with the active participation of most of their American counterparts. Acquitted in a resulting court-martial
1: proceeding, most of the Boston's officers were nonetheless dismissed from the Navy. Uh, if only we had email back then. Yeah. Hey guys, the war's over. I, I just, I'm just imagining these two you know, not quite in eyesight of each other, but you know the ship's just there on the edge of the horizon. You know, they're doing repairs for each other. Because you said both were temporarily out of action for the crews to do repairs. And the French just like, hey, hey, time out. We're at peace now. It's all over. You can stop.
0: Yeah, we just got the email. Yeah, a lot of time battles were, they wouldn't aim for the hull. They would aim for the rigging to disable the other vessel to be able to capture it. You only go for the hull if you don't think you're going to be able to capture So if you're going against a much larger ship, that's a good reason to aim for the hull. Try to hold her below the waterline to sink her. Otherwise, it's better to aim for the rigging and the crew and capture the ship. Try to
1: capture the ship. So... It's another Hollywood myth that cannonballs would turn any sort of uh, wooden hull into papier-mâché. Like, I'm not saying cannons would just simply bounce off repeatedly. But, you know, you couldn't just shoot a a 12-pound cannon at a ship. And, like, I know it's going to penetrate the hull, and I know I'm going to be causing a lot of casualties with those splinters. Nope. If If you want to take out the crew by either killing them or wounding them... You're better off aiming for the gun ports and hoping to go through that small little opening or aiming for the deck and rigging.
0: Aiming for the rigging. You'll get the splintering effect from there and get the top crew. You're not going to aim for those little holes, gun ports, because you're not going to hit them. Not with that attitude. And vessels vessels were built in a way that, especially war vessels, their holes were thicker. That was added wood for armor. So if you don't have a high enough poundage on your cannons, you will just bounce those balls right off the hole. They will not penetrate. So, go for the rigging. Without rigging, ship has no power. No power, you can maneuver wherever you want and keep raking the hole, hitting it with grape shot or canister shot, actually for anti-personnel is canister shot, not grape shot. Grape shot is actually for sails. For the rigging. Okay. okay. Canister shot
1: is for personnel. It's another myth that Hollywood has perpetuated. So it sounds like the uh, famous quote from a certain ship in a soon-to-air episode uh, may not necessarily be as impressive as it sounds, despite it being a fun little quote. Which is? Oh, huzzah, her sides are made of iron, the Constitution. No, actually, some people thought that her hull was iron because of how heavily armored she was. Oh, okay. So, it, like, even by the standards of... The, so, it sounds... Standards of the time, you don't normally go for the hull. But it can, with a heavy enough cannon, right angle, all the right situations, you can still get very bad damage. And not to fast-forward future episodes just yet. But by the technology in ship design and uh, making sure that it would be damn hard to sink, the Constitution was decades ahead of what the standards were at the time. So that quote of, you know, hey, her sides are made of iron, and just how the cannonballs seemed to bounce off, was impressive. Even though it sounds like cannonballs not penetrating the hull wasn't uncommon. It's mostly ship design. Okay. Okay.
0: Because you can design a warship, and it could be absolutely crap. Or you can design a warship, and it is the best warship on the sea, which can still be taken. And they were. There were many boats out on there that
1: were considered the best, and they still lost. So back in, back in this era, it was not common for ships to be sank. They either limped away or were taken as prize. The goal was not to sink the ship. The goal was to take the ship. Unless you had absolutely no other choice. Okay. Again, another Hollywood thing. Like, they seem to make it look like, uh, you know, we're going to blow you out of the water or you're going to blow us out of the water. But one of of these ships is not going to be on the seas for much longer. Yeah, no, that's a Hollywood myth. The goal was not to sink the ship. The goal was to take the ship. Darn you, Hollywood. <laughs> the USS
0: Enterprise vs. Flambeau was a single-ship battle fought in October 1800. In an effort to stem depredations against American shipping, several United States Navy warships were dispatched to hunt down French privateers. One such vessel was the USS Enterprise, an American naval schooner under the command of Lieutenant John Shaw, Enterprise had been sent out to the Caribbean Sea in March 1800 with orders to cruise against French shipping in the region. Enterprise had already previously engaged and defeated several French privateers when, on the night of October 24th, she sighted the privateer Flambeau off the leeward side of Dominica. The French letter of mark Flambeau was a brig that was slightly more powerful than Enterprise, having twelve pounds cannons as compared to the American schooner's dozen 6-pounders. The French privateer also had more crew than the American vessel. 110 opposed Enterprise's 83. With a broadside of 48 pounds to Enterprise's 36 pounds, and with a larger crew, Flambeau had an advantage over Enterprise. Nonetheless, Shaw decided to engage Flambeau. Enterprise could not catch up to Flambeau, but when morning came, Flambeau found herself becalmed. Her captain then used sweeps to close with Enterprise. So this is what we were talking about earlier. She had oars. Ah, okay. Eventually a wind came and the two ships managed to maneuver towards each other until they were within musket range. After engaging with small arms for a while, Lieutenant Shaw eventually feared his schooner away and the flambeau opened up on the Americans with a broadside of round shot. The Enterprise replied with her own broadside and the two vessels engaged each other with cannon for 20 minutes. The flambeau was beginning to receive heavy damage when her captain decided to disengage and maneuvered away from the Enterprise. However, Enterprise pursued the French brig and continued to engage her. Flambeau's foretopmast was in danger of being demasted from damage it had received from Enterprise. So the French captain sent men a lot to try to repair it. However, after a sudden gust of wind, the mast flew off, the ship carrying six French sailors with it. The Enterprise ceased her attacks upon the flambeau, and sent out a boat to rescue the French sailors adrift on the topmast. After rescuing the French topmen, the Enterprise caught up with the French brig and came alongside. Before the battle could continue, the French captain struck her colors, as Flambeau's medicine chest had been destroyed and the hull compromised multiple times. The entire battle lasted about 40 minutes. The French were much worse off than the Americans in terms of casualties, with seven Frenchmen killed and 33 wounded compared to three Americans killed and seven wounded. A prize crew from Enterprise was sent aboard the Flambeau and sailed her to St. Kitts, where she was condemned. The proceeds from the sale of the Flambeau were adjudicated to the crew of the Enterprise. So this is again when the crew received the sales cost. The capture of Flambeau brought further acclaim to Shah, who had already defeated several other French privateers and taken them as prizes. Enterprise continued her cruise, next chasing down and capturing the Pauline and later the Guadalupini. Shortly afterwards, chronic illness forced Shaw to transfer command of the vessel to Lieutenant Andrew Staddart. Staddart continued to cruise Caribbean, taking several more prizes before returning home. Upon Shaw's return home, the president and other public officials personally thanked him for his service.
1: Shaw later continued his naval career, serving with distinction during the War of 1812. So, this incident engagement... I should say, this engagement wasn't so much of an incident because this was not a French Navy vessel, this was a privateer vessel. In these terms, whether it's a privateer or French Navy, it's all the same because of that letter of mark. Okay. So, why with this vessel then, were they not... Oh, were they slow getting to Boston? So by the time they got back to Boston was the issue, or did the... I guess I'm just a little confused because if the previous engagement happened after a peace agreement had been made and this engagement happened afterwards, wouldn't the, hey, Americans open fire on a French vessel and a French vessel open fire on an American vessel after we were supposed to be at peace, still be a problem? I would think so. It could
0: be that the, again, with how slow word travels, could be that they did not know it or it could be because they were french
1: privateers that they went ahead and did it. Okay. And and what was the port you said they went to? Maybe it wasn't maybe it was an american ally rather than american soil? It's uh, off of Dominica. Okay.
0: And it also could be that this privateer was continuing to harass
1: american shipping.
0: Mm. And that's why the enterprise engaged
1: sort of like how I was going to say in the golden age of piracy, a lot of them were former privateers that, well, these letters of Mark are no longer any good legally, but we've already been doing it for so long. Why not just keep it up? Could be. Unfortunately, we don't have any information of why this battle exactly took place. Okay. all, All we can do is guess. Okay. As this was never officially a war, the paper trail and documentation is a bit sparse.
0: Right on the uh, wise. The
1: the further back you go, the less information
0: you can find. Whether the documentation was destroyed in like fires, which happens quite a lot, or somebody high up in the government was like, "Well, nobody's gonna know about this." Redacted. Yep,
1: we're gonna smoke it by lighting a fire. <laughs> <laughs> Archives, come on, get your act together, get some fire extinguishers. A, B, and C are important. That, uh, unfortunately we don't know why this battle actually
0: happened. But yes, you are correct, it happened several months after. Okay.
1: Yeah, six months after. Yeah, it's like that... Maybe I got my dates mixed up, but this seems to be happening after we already had an international incident. and Half a year seems like long enough that everybody should be on the same level about... We're not shooting cannons at each other anymore. Stop that. Um, This is part of the conflict. We just don't know why. Okay. Okay. And we have one more. Dang nabbit captains. We're at peace now. Just stop it, please. You might be, (laughs) but they're not. (laughs) Look, I'm sorry. The letter of Mark didn't turn out to be as profitable as it was supposed to be. I mean, this this one takes place only four months after instead of six.
0: Uh, Okay. The Siege of Curacao was a battle in Curacao in 1800 between the French Navy and the Batavin Republic, the United States Navy, and the Royal Navy. The island of Curacao was important to American merchants in the Caribbean, as ships had been stationed there to guard American interests since the start of the Quasi-War. The sloop USS Papasco, was ordered to sail there in May 1800 and arrived in June and left soon afterwards. No American ships were stationed at Curacao. On July 23rd, when a French fleet arrived from Guadalupe, consisting of five ships of 1,400 men and sailors, the French forces landed and their commander demanded the surrender of the forts, which Governor Johann Lasser refused. An additional 10 vessels with more sailors and men had landed by September 5th when the French forces attacked the forts protecting the town of Willemstad, capturing one and sending a note threatening to attack Americans. American Consul Benjamin Phillips sent a messenger to St. Kitts and the USS Merrimack and Papasco were sent to Curacao on September 14th, arriving on September 22nd. Meanwhile, the British frigate HMS Naride, under Frederick Watkins had been sent to the island to prevent its capture by the French, On September 10th, the ship arrived on the eastern point of Curacao and there chased two privateers that the French commander had left cruising as pickets. After these vessels retreated into a bay that contained a further 15 privateers, Watkins sailed to Willemstead, where he had been engaging various targets that were firing in the town. An American merchantman soon informed the British of the situation that the Dutch were willing to capitulate to the British in exchange for protection. The British landed a force of 20 Marines and accepted Governor Lassoe's surrender three days later. The French still held two forts near the town, and on September 22nd, prior to the arrival of the American forces, the French commander had demanded the surrender of the town within 24 hours. On September 23rd, to save the town and protect American property, the Papasco sailed into the harbor, landed her Marines, reinforced with 20 Marines from the Merrimack. The Marines manned a gun battery and fanned out through the town. At approximately 1,700, the French forts and men fired upon the defending forces, which the cannon of the Papascao answered along with the muskets and cannon of the defending forces. Two Americans were wounded with an unknown number of French casualties. On September 24th, the French again exchanged cannon and musket fire with the defending forces, and the volume of French fire led the defenders to expect an assault on the town. However, during the night, the French abandoned their positions and sailed away. On the morning of September 25th, the Merrimack discovered the French ships had sailed away during the night. The Nernid sailed into the town, and the surrender took effect. Fearing that the French would return, Watkins asked the two American captains to cruise off to the windward side of the island, while Nernid secured the island. At ten days of cruising, the Americans captured only one French vessel before stopping off at Wimbledonstead, while on their return to St. Kitts. Upon their return to Curacao, the Americans discovered that Watkins had failed to keep his word and instead of protecting American property, had embargoed 41 ships in the harbor, of which seven were American. The nurse commander also impounded a large quantity of specie belonging to Consul Phillips and set British privateers cruising with orders to seize American shipping. In his reports, Watkins completely ignored the assistance the Americans had provided in seizing the island and failed to even mention their presence during the action. Watkins' treatment of the Americans was not approved by British officials, and upon the appointment of a new commander for the British, Jamaica <coughs> Station,
1: he was stripped of his command, and the specie he had seized was returned. Okay, so this is the second time specie has come up. Is this a old-timey way of saying spice? It's an old-timey way of saying coins. Ah, okay. It's money. Money's understandable to fight over. It's kind of been... A thing for thousands of years. Um, okay. So I just want to make sure I understand this right. Town was Dutch. French attacked. The Americans had showed up earlier, but there were no American interests there. So they left, but they stayed in the area. The governor sent out people to ask for help. Then the Americans got the message and started sailing down. Then the British showed up. The town said, hey, we will... Uh, change the flag over to British, no longer be a Dutch uh, port of interest. British then set up to drive away the French. Then the Americans arrived. The British said, hey, they left, but they may have gone that way. And then a bunch more British reinforcements showed up, and then American assets were beginning to become seized. Close. Okay. Sorry, there were a lot of players in this one. It's like, this was that, you know, guy shuffling the cards and me just trying to keep track. Who has the town at this moment? Batavan
0: Republic has control of the port. All right. The Americans come by, wave, everything's cool. The French come in and take the port. Take the island, I guess. But at least the port. The city. The port and the port city. The French take it. At which point, the American consular there, or let's say, more modern terms. Ambassador. Ambassador, exactly. Sent a message saying, hey, French just attacked us. We need help. At which point, two ships are dispatched. That's when the British get there. They had sailed there to prevent the island from being taken at first, but they just didn't get there in time. And work together to retake the island. Then the British say, hey, can you go over there and make sure there's no threats? They go over there and make sure there's no threats. When they come back, the English was like, you know what? Screw you guys. We're taking all your stuff. Finder's fee.
1: Not even that. <laughs> We're taking your stuff. <laughs> well, now it just sounds like old-fashioned piracy. Yep. It was very <laughs> close. But eventually...
0: Things were worked out and it was like, no, guys can't do that because Watkins did not have permission from the British government. He was acting by himself. So, yeah, it it is more like piracy. Pretty much.
1: I'm going to do this and hope my government backs me. Uh, Right. It's I I have a letter of Mark. I just really hope that. that... Oh, this is an actual naval vessel. Oh, no. Oh, no. I thought you said that there were some uh, British privateers involved. That's why I thought, oh, he must be a British privateer looking to make a buck and hoping that the United Kingdom will stand behind him when he starts an international incident.
0: Oh, you got confused because they chased away two French privateers that were left in the port to defend it.
1: You are ending on a really topsy-turvy, you know, lot of players... Last year you been nice and simple. Hey, there was this captain, there was this lieutenant or commodore. They had a scuffle on the high seas. You know, one, they either got away from each other or one was taken as a prize. And then you have this, you know, three-act drama of betrayal, alliances forged and broken, you know, bonds, you know, made between the, you mentioned the Dutch at some point. I know you did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It was a Dutch town. Okay. The, the long story short, not only has the flag changed over this island town several times over the centuries, it was changed a few times in a very short span of time in 1800. Very short, yes. Okay. A matter of a day yeah, or two. Yeah, That that is the short and sweet of this final encounter in the war that didn't actually happen yeah that was the last conflict uh so i guess a few questions overall then is uh in ap american history i never once heard about this uh do you think uh history courses just don't teach about it because it was a relatively brief span of time never officially a war and france is traditionally an ally of the united states it could be Things are left out of history courses
0: all the time because either they're embarrassing or they just don't want to teach it. Okay. More than likely it was left off just because of our mostly peaceful relationship with the French since the beginning of the United States' creation. The only other time I can think of right now where we fought the French is during World War II. You're making a face.
1: I, I, I am making a face because I'm, I mean, technically we invaded France. There was,
0: when Hitler came in and took France, yes. he separated France into two areas. Well, one is the free state where he said yes. you can do whatever you want. And then below that in the southern half
1: is the France he controlled. Southern half fought us. Huh. Another thing AP American history did not teach.
0: We well, we'll get into
1: all that when we hit <laughs> yes. World War II. Yes, that that is many, many episodes down the line. There's all kinds of advances in technology, new plot lines, new characters. You know, it's it's not even the same show at that point. Oh, it's the same show. Yeah. <laughs> the US Navy History Podcast. Okay. Um, And then kind of related to this first question, uh, do you think the French teach about this at all in their schools? If there are any listeners in France, why don't you let him
0: know? You can email us at US Navy History Podcast,
1: or you can write a review answering the question for us. Yes, we'd love to know if uh, both sides are ignorant of this conflict in the last 200 years. Anything further before we, uh, pull into the port? Uh, no. I've just learned that when in doubt, fly up the Union Jack. I probably won't be shot at until they know I'm not British. Unless you're at war with Britain. Yes. Unless I'm at war with the UK, then maybe don't open with the Union Jack. It's good advice. Good advice. Okay. Well, thank you guys for joining us.
0: Again, if you want to contact us, you can so at US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And I will out to wish you fair winds and following seas. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing.